Dr. Steve Pachanik with Adam Curry for January 14th, 2020. This is episode number six. That's right. We're rocking the Casbah today. Whatever the hell a Caspa may, may be. <laughs> and uh, with me is my friend Steve Pachenik. Steve, how you doing? It's always a pleasure to come on. I was a little sick, but now coming on with you, I enjoy it and I feel a lot better. Oh, well, good. I'm, so, I'm happy to hear this. <laughs> yeah. I'm always upbeat when it comes to talk with you. So where would you like to go, Adam? Well, Steve, this, is, uh, this of course, is the podcast you uh, listen to once a month because, you know, about after about four weeks, you and I are like, you know, yeah, we should probably talk. We got stuff to discuss. And I right. think, uh, you know, just based on the opening tune, the obvious place to start today is with Iran. And I have a lot of questions. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about Iran other than, you know, the, the general history of, um, you know, modern history. But um, what has been going on uh, in the past uh, few weeks has just been, I think, a, a fantastic time to be alive and to witness what's happening. Certainly, with the internet and the ability to uh, communicate directly into this country, uh, we're very connected, and really to see uh, U.S. policy at work, um, although I have no idea who's running what anymore. It's, a, it's an interesting statement you make. There's no question in my mind that from the very day Trump came in, Trump is running U.S. policy. It may not look elegant. It may not look smooth. It may not have all the characteristics that we associate with the uh, – you know, the the Cheneys who are ruthless, liars, cowards, and they say wonderful things and then they bring us to war. This is a man who, in all of his pomposity and self-aggrandizement, is smart as Machiavelli, even probably smarter. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He did not articulate well why he wants to do it. It's nobody's business. The business of extraction or surgical extraction, as I've known and you've known it from other histories, is a very sophisticated business. That means you want to take out someone and you want to take them out very quickly with the least amount of collateral damage. He did it. The reasons for it can be multivarious. In other words, they could be all kinds of reasons in the past, which there were. Suleimani was the man who headed up the killing of our own soldiers. And I've got to say from the people I know who've been in Iraq and were uh, involved in the Iraq war, though I was against it repeatedly and still was, I still am. Nevertheless, 500 to about 1,000 of our soldiers were killed directly by Iranian, uh, the IRG, under Suleimani's direction. Direction. And many of my friends in intelligence and the various elements of the intelligence community did not forget that. That, along with the notion that there was a clear and present danger, which doesn't mean it's imminent, although anytime you have somebody like Suleimani, it is an imminent danger because you do not know when he's going to act out. And in the business of extraction, which I know a little bit about, you really act at the moment that one or the individual wants to act. In other words, when I was doing a surgical extraction, I did not inform 
any of the people I was with. I didn't even inform my intelligence corps. I didn't inform the president of the United States. I didn't inform anyone. I did what I had to do and quietly left. Maybe 20 years later, somebody got an idea. Whoa, this was an unusual occurrence, the extraction of somebody. But the, the, the point of fact is he did it very well. And what's happening in that process, he uncovered an important strategic problem. And, and that's what really surprised me. And I'll say it right away. For the past 20 years, I have said that Ayatollah Khamenei, the son of Khomeini, whom I had negotiated with, I'd been to Khomeini's house, and they were very pleasant with me after his death, has not been the most effective leader as a Muslim and as a leader in general. He was totally corrupt. He's not very bright. And in fact, you saw the entire dynamic of this individual when they accidentally shot 176 people in the Ukrainian airline. That action alone, with the fact of his deception, corruption, and the fact he was silent, will change the dynamics of Iran. And that probably is called an unintended consequence. Uh, that's, a fan, that's a very good backgrounder. Um, I'd like to get a little bit deeper, and I, I know that you can help us with, with the end, or help me. Um, there's really... Unlike the United States, where you know we have the people of the United States and and the government of and you know for and by the people, in Iran this has historically been different for a long time. And um, what I know about the people of Iran is, or as my friends would call themselves, Persians. For some reason, they don't like to be known as Iranians, um, and maybe that's a significant difference. You know, there is it's really two different. Uh, Two different opinions, two different lifestyles, two different cultures, uh, with one ruling the other, um, and it's you know, it it seems like it has been this way for decades. We've had protests, we've had uh, an overthrow, although we know it was an assist. Where are we right now? I mean, is it is it just the students who are who don't want this anymore? Is there a real is there a real movement within Iran to uh, change their quote-unquote leadership? And how could it effectively be done? Is it only protests and violence that works, or what, what needs to happen? Well, as a result of the crash of the Ukrainian airline, the, 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 the lie that Ayatollah Khamenei uh, exposed, what has happened is that the entire country, including generals like Salam of the IRG and people who are involved in the city governments, have literally resigned saying, I can no longer abide by the corruption and disinformation that's being perpetrated by Khamenei. Now, the history of revolution in Iran is not new. So we go back to 1906 when we had an Islamic revolution coming in. In and they were the lords who brought it together. Remember, Shiaism is a constant enemy of Sunni. It started in 600 AD over the issue of who Muhammad's successor was. For Shiite, it, it, was, uh, not, uh, it was Ali, but basically the, their concentration is on the oppression of people. So the 
Persians or the Iranians, they don't like the word Iranian because it was a word that was changed by Raj, uh, the Shah of Iran in the 20s instead of Persian. These are Persians who have had a history of about 7,000 years with a religion called Zoroastrian, neither Jewish nor Christian nor uh, Baha'i. It was the basis of Christianity and Judaism, heaven and hell. As a result of that, they consolidated power in the 1500s. So Shia has been a part of the area we call Iran. In 1906, there was a consolidation of power. By 1923, the Shah Pahlavi, not the one that we took out, came into power and basically had an overthrow and brought in, guess who? Our British friends. And what did our British friends want? They wanted the oil. As a result of that oil, they built up uh, British Petroleum, which became a multi-billion dollar corporation. In turn, there was the beginning of a civilian revolution along with Shiites. In other words, the Shiite element has never really disappeared. In 1927, uh, the Shah of Iran, this the first one, was found to be corrupt by World War II. He was taken out and asked to resign by the British, French, and the Russians because of the immense amount of corruption. In turn, Shah Pahlavi came in. That is the Shah we know about. And he was involved in a coup in 1953 where we, the United States, Britain, took out a man by the name of Mossadegh who nationalized the oil fields. Right. But what's forgotten in that in that area is the fact that Mossadegh was part of the Communist Party. We, we forget that element. It's not just communism coming in. It was Churchill saying, we can't tolerate the nationalization of oil. They had a national security interest. The United States was interested. Roosevelt's son was involved. Schwarzkopf's father was involved. And the CIA, in conjunction with MI6, overthrew the Shah. Uh, overthrew Mossadegh and brought in Shah Pahlavi. Now, historically, we always see Pahlavi as somebody who's been corrupt and incompetent. The truth of the matter is that from about 1957 or 63 to about 1978, he had created what's called the White Revolution. In other words, he modernized much of Iran because they produced billions of dollars of oil uh, 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 dollars. And in turn, he did put it into roads, infrastructure, modernization of Iran, and they developed a what we call the White Revolution. The irony of that revolution is that many of the farmers who used to work in the field, they were literally gotten out of business because of modernization. We didn't need as many farmers in the field. The kids who went to universities because of Pahlavi and the increased education didn't have jobs. So the irony of this white revolution was that we were modernizing Iran alongside of a Shia element, which was secondary to it. And then suddenly the Shia element started to become more prominent. And there was this Ayatollah Khomeini, who was a critic of the Shah. 
during the time where Iran was ruled by the Shah and it was a ruthless rule. In other words, everyone that has come in there has not been beneficent or good to the Iranians. They have been ruthless. In the case of Shah Pahlavi, he used Savak. Ironically, much of Savak had become the IRG. I used mm. to say in 79, they just changed their armbands around. Because of Khomeini's protests coming in, and ironically, he was in France at that time, the Shah suddenly said, we're going to crack down on everything that occurred. And the people began to resist the Shah, the corruption, the absence of jobs, the modernization. And Shiaism was really secondary to it. What was happening is, and ironically, in 78, 79, I was sent out to Iran to deal with Spike Dubbs, an ambassador who was accidentally killed in Afghanistan. But my stopover when it's in Iran, when I came back to the Jimmy Carter administration, I explained to them that the Russians in Tehran had told me that we have to evacuate our embassies and not put anybody back in there because there was a incipient coup by the Iranian militants, some of whom were Shia and some of whom were, you know, secular students. And they had taken over our ambassador, ironically, had been a CIA operative, but he's an excellent ambassador, Sullivan. Now, that was misread by the Carter administration, by a lot of people in the White House, that we had already been taken hostage because Sullivan was so brilliant that in the New York Times, you saw him extend his hands out over the two guards that he had who were students and made it look as if this was a house call. <laughs> but when I had warned Gary Sick at the National Security Council and President Carter, with whom I already had problems because of the Hanaf. Muslim. He wasn't a coward. He was just not competent that we should not send in any foreign service officers into Iran. They refused that uh, recommendation, not just because of me, but I had Cyrus Vance, who agreed with that, Warren Christopher, who was deputy secretary of state, and ironically, some of the CIA operatives, including Stanfield Turner, who understood, because I had a good relationship with him, that you could not put back the foreign service officers into Iran. And what happened, of course, because Jimmy Carter felt that that was the right thing to do, along with the uh, the uh, encouragement of Brzezinski, who's never been given the right uh, uh, the, the right uh, assessment. He was a, a terrible, terrible national security advisor. I mean, I don't know what he wrote in his book, but he was just a really horrible advisor. And we had problems with him and Cyrus Vance resigned over it. Nevertheless, the, the Foreign Service officers, about 60 to 70, went back into our embassy there and I was ordered uh, just before the Iran hostage siege, I was ordered to go out and see Khomeini and talk to him, Ayatollah Khomeini. I turned it down. I was a military officer, a deputy assistant secretary of state. I said, I cannot fo follow your orders anymore. I will resign and keep quiet. And I did. And I, I, I didn't say that they would go on for the Iran hostage siege would go on for years. I just said it's going to go on for a long time. And I had no idea of how long it would go on. I resigned then Cyrus Vance resigned six months later. So up until this point, um, I think this is probably the moment where my Persian friends say, oh, you know, we've known for as long as we've been alive 
and that's, you know, these are 30, 40 year olds that America and Iran are always working together. And they're very cynical about it. They're like, man, all this noise. It's, yeah, we know. And I think that was because of the October surprise, the, the hostage release that set some kind of tone within uh, within Iran saying, OK, well, all this. And I think they're actually really good at it. They're, they're very good at filtering it out. Uh, they may be fantastic analysts uh, to use for intelligence because they seem to really be able to cut through the bull crap. And all of this was about pretty much about oil. And I understand, you know, going back to if I don't want to go further back than, you know, Reagan and we have Bush, uh, I think, uh, or uh, Bush one, uh, Clinton, also about oil, Bush two. Um, but then Obama, it starts to change kind of in Bush two, it starts to change. Now we have this. It's the nuclear threat. Was it always about the oil? And is it still about the oil just under the cover of, oh, scary nuclear armament? No, what it is is Iran is a powerful, powerful Shiite presence in the Middle East. You have a Sunni presence with Saudi Arabia and with Turkey. You have a secular presence with, uh, so to speak, other countries that are there. And we have always had an interest in the Middle East because of its strategic location. The underbelly of uh, Russia, Russia has always been on top of that, uh, Iran. So strategically, we've always been interested. Ironically, Obama doesn't get any credit for the fact, as much as I've criticized the administration, that they were responsible for net export of oil. So from that time in Obama's time, we were not dependent on the oil. Uh, the Clintons were dependent on oil. Reagan was dependent on oil, as was a Carter. So the issue there was we didn't want to use our strategic oil. We were not dependent on oil. So they made an agreement on the nuclear power issue. Do the Iranians really care to have a nuclear bomb? In my opinion, See, I, don't, I, don't I think know. so. Well, I don't yeah. think they care about it. No. What they care about is what you said. They just like to shake, rattle, and roll. They like to get into a, a conflict, or not a conflict, but a a consistent dialogue with us that becomes aggressive. In a way, it allows their leaders to distract the people from the fact that the economy is very, very bad. It's been very bad for years. Well, well if I can just stop you there. Sure. Uh, in particular, when uh, President Trump came in, but you know, economic sanctions in my mind is warfare. I mean, it's it is we've been waging a form of war against Iran for a long time. You are right. Uh, it is an economic uh, warfare. It's called economic warfare, but there has always been a loophole. That's where your Iranian friends are cynical and they know that. And that loophole has been the fact that we have not hit all the central banks that provide the credit lines to the system in Iran. In other words, we have had an economic warfare. The people have been hurt. And they've been hurt quite seriously. But remember what I said under the Shah of Iran, the white revolution, they were hurt as well because of the corruption and the fact that there weren't enough jobs. The truth of the matter is that Iran has never had really an effective secular leader who really understands how to manage this country without having to resort to Shiite or to corruption or to an absolute autocracy. The oil was part of it, but internally it is a 
it is a disaster of the highest order economically. Number one, the embargoes or the tariffs we placed in has caused 200 percent inflation. Mm. The unemployment may be from 40 to 50 percent among the young kids. As you know, your friends will tell you probably 40 to 50 percent of that population in the millions are under the age of 30. And when you go there, as I have, it's sad because you see a lot of the kids shooting up. There's not very much that they can do and and, or they protest. And these are exceedingly bright kids. And unfortunately, many of them had to leave to Canada, as we saw in the Ukrainian airline crash. There was about 80 students from Iran. And fortunately, many of them come to the United States. Some come to Britain, some come to Germany. And I've seen them all over Europe. But the fact of the matter is uh, Khamenei has no idea how to run this country, and he's basically counting the days before he'll be overthrown by an internal mechanism or by the young students. So uh, a couple of the we need, definitely need to pause in history here. Um, what is the end goal for the United States? I mean, I just what is the end goal for Trump? It, it, it's, it obviously is not just you're not going to have a nuclear weapon. I mean – in my mind, it would be we need to get Boeing in there. We need to get some uh, tourism going. I mean, is, is that truly what the idea is? You, you actually you hit it on the head. It's not you hit it so correctly that you don't even realize. I'll give you an example from the north, from Qum or the north of Iran. I flew in a 747 Boeing that was 10 that at ten, that time, 10 years ago, was already 10 to 15 years old. Yeah. And it was decrepit. Yet the Iranians, uh, the, the, the stewardesses and the pilot kind of laughed with me and they said it would be great if we get Boeing back in here. So what we really need and I think what Trump is looking at and you hit it on the head, he's looking at business. You got to remember what he is, is a businessman. Yeah. So he wants and what he did was a brilliant back channel maneuver and we thank the swiss for that to say we're not interested increasing the tension we don't want a war I, I, really- I, I, I just want to stop you there steve because this is not really big mainstream about the swiss being the go-between okay. all right I think it's important to understand uh, in your audience that whenever we do, let's say, a surgical extraction, which means we take out somebody or we take out a regime, we also signal at the same time to our adversaries that we do not want to escalate. The reason we do that is because they understand proportionality and what we want and Trump has literally said it publicly, we want proportionality, meaning that if you're Iraq and you want to get back because your integrity has been hurt, which it is, and the dynamics of the Ayatollah Khamenei is such that he needed to show he was in power, we didn't want to make him look powerless, then we'll allow you to put some missiles into Iraq on an army base where we have no casualties. That was tolerable. That's called back-channel communications, and that has been a very important element under Trump. Let me just say it under Carter. We had the CIA, we had Helms, and I had over 400 people in that embassy. How many people do you think actually spoke Farsi? That was back in the Carter administration. Oh, pr- probably zero. Eight. <laughs> Close Eight enough. 
close enough. So you understood exactly where our problem was under Carter, oil, the inability to predict it correctly, the intelligence, the CIA really coming back in, in droves, thinking that they had succeeded. And the answer was it was a disaster on all accounts. With Trump, it looks like a disaster only because he, sound, he has to answer every question. <laughs> the one recommendation I would give to him is, Mr. President, you did a good job. Please keep your mouth quiet and just go on to the next point, which is really the agreement with China, which will come in tomorrow. So all of the events and we're talking about a businessman who's really accomplishing end goals and not just process, contrary to what Pelosi's talking about, Schiff and all the others. We're not in the process business anymore. In a way, I think Trump is the nightingale that's basically going to show us or, or sing the song that we are finished with process. We saw the ineffectualness of, of the Congress. They really don't work very well because they're into process. And what we're really into is manufacturing goods. Uh, we're basically an end product oriented society where we'll have a devolution of power. We've talked about it. That's why Texas, Florida, is increasing in population while 300 or 400 people leave uh, California every day for 365 days. Let me just ask you about so um, the the goal the end the end game is clear at least for Iran with the United States with this president. How we does he, one of them, one of them? How does he square that with the because we still have this underpinning of a religious dispute which has been going on for a long time and we have. Uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And how are, are we going to be fair weather friends to both? Or how does that work? How does that dynamic That's an fit? Excellent question. Before we shot down, uh, we killed Soleimani and the, and the Ukrainian airline was shot down. I had already been talking about, and I noticed that, and I give credit to Mohammed bin Salman, the prince of Saudi Arabia, who I have criticized in the past. He nevertheless has made overtures before we even uh, shot, uh, killed Soleimani. So he already was in the process of saying, you know what, we're tired of a Sunni-Shiite uh, conflict. We want to have oil. We want to talk about it. And as a matter of fact, he was so concerned about the assassination of Soleimani that he sent his brother to Trump within oh. 24 Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that a lot of uh, a lot of dudes around the world went, oh shit, uh, that could happen to me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you hit it on the head as well that when we take out somebody like Soleimani with very little collateral damage or none at all, we're basically showing to the world that technologically we're extremely effective at assassination. This was a 5,000-pound MQ-9 Reaper drone. It went 1,500 miles, and it travels at 50,000 feet above the ground and can hit so quickly that you have no idea what happened. The point of fact is we're not trying to threaten Mohammed bin Salman, but Mohammed bin Salman now understands there are going to be overtures of peace with Iran. Turkey wants to make sure there are overtures of peace. They want to increase their economy. They right now are serving as a surrogate We've given them $6 billion so that uh, people, the Africans going through uh, Europe, 
will not get into Greece and 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 the European countries. So well, well, Gre- Greece and Cyprus are very separate now. I think I think the, these are very uh, and you know Israel has a lot to do with Cyprus and there's a lot of money rolling through it. And now we have natural gas going through this region. So that's really almost to me is separate from the rest of the EU now. It is in a way. Uh, it is in a way, Adam. But you've got to think that. As Israel makes an overture to Cyprus and then they make an overture to the EU, we can make a gas pipeline. They, in turn, have understood that the days of having wars is not very effective for them. They're a high technology country. And for the most part, they are part of the cyber community around the world. In other words, UAE has them. Dubai has them. Saudi Arabia brings in the units of the 8200, And we have them. And we have companies that really were built by Israelis, Palo Alto Network, CyberArk, and all that. So the positive part of Israel is coming forth to the forefront. I think they're tired of a war with Iran. Now, ironically, what has not been known, and I explained it years ago, Israel fought on behalf of Ayatollah Khomeini, not Khomeini, the father, in the Iran-Iraq war, which Mm -hmm. was... Fortunately, started by our neocons, Zameh Khalazad and the Boltons and all that under the Bush, under Reagan and, 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 and Schultz, where literally a million people were killed both in Iraq and a, and a million people in Iran. And when I went to the battlefield, it was terrible. It looked like a battlefield in World War One. And the Iranians understood they could no longer do this again, nor did they want to. But at the same time, what was not known was the Israelis flew on behalf of the Iranians, Ayatollah Khomeini, and we flew on behalf of Iraq, and the Israelis flew in unmarked Phantom Jets. Mm. So welcome to the real world. Right, right. You know, it's as I'm listening to you go through the history and all the and the different countries and their feeling towards uh, kinetic war, it seems like in general, everyone's kind of going, you know, this has not worked for us. It has not worked for anybody. It's messy. It's problematic. It never really ends well. There are other ways that we can um, threaten slash wage war. I'm thinking, you know, we have space, we have uh, cyberspace. Um is, 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 is that is that the trend? Is, yeah. is that the end? And, and how and how does the military industrial complex um, move along with that change? Because if we're going from stuff that blows up brown people in sandy areas to cyber and space, I mean, that's a big change in in the whole in the Pentagon, basically. You got it. And I think you hit it right on the head. There is going to be a sea change. And fortunately, I've been. Not part of it, but I when I was trained in 1972 at MIT, I was trained on cyber command, net force. That was 1972. Social networking. You you were already training on that back then. Exactly. That was DARPA and the CIA. Although I was never a member of the CIA, I was trained then in 72, 73 on the Internet and Net Force and Cyber Command. At the RAND Corporation, years later, it became more advanced. Now you hit it on the head, Adam. We have now created a new institution. It's not new. It's about five to ten years old. National Geospatial Agency, NGA. It has to do with geospatial. Which I think I think actually it changed. It changed its name to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. I thought it had changed its name. 
correct. (laughs) (laughs) Be it as it is, it is an intelligence agency, but it's really in cyber communication. Uh, The, you know, we are turning away from kinetic energy and the kinetic war. We no longer want tanks. I don't know what to do with 2.2 million armed forces. What I really need are the young kids who don't have to go to college. They really learn on their own. And the whiz kids who can turn the narrative away from the book to the podcast. Do you know anybody like that, Adam? (laughs) It's a great idea. (laughs) Yeah. And so that type of individual is the, the forefront of our revolution. It's quiet. You don't have to go to Harvard and MIT for that. But in fact, artificial intelligence, the appearance, as you know, as as deadly as it is, a 5G, but cyber command and space are the two issues. That's why Trump, again, very cleverly created a space unit in DOD. Now, we've always had NASA. So the question was, why do we need a unit in DOD, which is a military unit? Well, you kind of hinted at it before. We have a space warfare that's been going on for quite a while now. The satellites have been shooting at each other at different countries, and we haven't talked about it. It's been in the background or it's back channel. In effect, our Department of Defense has said, look, we really need a military capacity that goes to space. Fortunately, we have an institution that trains for that, and that's called the Air Force Academy in Colorado, where we literally recruit the best and the brightest, and they will, most of them will probably go into the space warfare. So we are moving very quickly along those lines. Raytheon is moving along that, L3 Communications moving along that line, CyberArk is moving, and that's why the, the Israelis, particularly in that unit, is very important to the advancement of cyber command and cyber control. I, I'd like to define this a little bit, because this this is very interesting to me, and, and by the way, I think the, the the armed forces will have to let up a little bit on uh, previous uh, drug use, etc., for these new workers that they're looking for, because you're always going to have a problem hiring very highly creative people. The best programmers, in my mind, are bassists. Well, they like smoking weed, and that's how they get so good. But what are the actual tools of cyber and space warfare? Um, is it the well, for, uh, to me, obviously, central banking, and I think that we need to really modernize how we're doing that if that's going to be a, a tool of warfare because it's easy to route around it, and that's what's taking place everywhere. And is it bringing down grids? Is that is that the the main tool of the warfare, or is it truly informational, deep fakes, uh, propaganda, disinformation, or is it all? I mean, what are the tools? It's, it's, uh, you hit it. You know that that E that we have in exams where it says all of the above. It literally hit them all. When I did the uh, NetForce four hour Tom Clancy series, we kind of showed what would happen if we had a cyber attack in space and and our electrical systems, things would go down very quickly. In other words, the the equivalent attack, if successful, would mean that we wouldn't have power, we wouldn't have light, we wouldn't have machinery. And you'd have to imagine a 21st century without the accoutrements under the underlying support system, lights, power, water, heat, whatever else we had. And this is quite serious. So we don't need to have a shell or a grenade coming in. We just need people who can be able to manipulate 
the the keys on the internet now the fact that our economy is is sensitive to what you said is correct blockchain technology which you know better than i do was an attempt to get around that but again i saw the weakness in blockchain technology as having to rely on power the minute you had to rely on power that meant ironically you were in a paradoxical situation you thought you were not you but you thought you were ahead of the game but i needed iceland or china to go 24 7 on their power grids in order to generate the amount of power that i needed for block technology so in effect that advanced technology was regressive in terms of depending on the on the uh, the nation state what will happen i think there will be all kinds of changes much faster than we're uh, used to the issue of the 15 year old the 19 year old who smokes pot i don't get into that that's that's you're correct i mean those are the kids of this generation the millennials whom i know don't smoke pot but they're really quite effective they get involved in their local communities and they know a lot about <laughs> steve if they're not smoking pot 60 percent of them are on antidepressants i'm just saying that there, there no, has to I be some it. leniency you know i got it i i agree with you i don't think the the admission criteria for anybody is correct i mean it's antiquated and you know i don't know if there will be recruiting officers that's an antiquated notion but from the point of view where you're coming in or i come in as i understand it and you know this better than i do the black hatters are recruited in other words those young people or older kids who can basically hack into a system automatically present themselves as a candidate to the NGA or some yeah, other, I mean, we'll, we'll basically have a system of consultants like Blackwater, Z, etc., and you know the government deals with the consultant company, and then whatever they do there is you know is a little a little off book. The, the the so-called enemy of today becomes our ally of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If he can hack into our systems, we want him, her, or whatever they want to call themselves. So 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 let's look at what where we are right now. Um, with uh with iran and the format for what has taken place and i and i definitely want to talk if we have time later a little bit about the the jetliner that was brought down who how what what where but as ram emanuel said you know never let a good crisis go to waste so wonder above all wonder iran comes out you know the irg comes out admits the mistake which to me is already like wow okay that's not common that that happens so quickly admits the mistake right away the president's tweeting in farsi you know we understand the idea here the idea is rile up the students that's the the main ones get them to protest you know it's been tried with color revolutions um from what i understand it's possible that Facebook at 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 minimum is blocking uh, pro regime messaging coming uh, out of uh, out of Iran, which you know we know who's who's running Facebook and a lot of these Silicon Valley companies. We know where the funding comes from. Um, what is 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 it going to work? I I don't see it. I see failure right now. I don't see the proper messaging. I don't see uh, even a, a half-ass attempt at at making it look like there's big crowds. The news of uh, the students who were killed, fourteen, fifteen hundred of them, not propagated. What is going on? Why is the system not firing on all cylinders? 
It's a good question. The system in and of itself is firing on on all cylinders. We just don't know about it. So let's let's look at the following. We monitor those young kids who are protesting in the streets. How did we know there was 1,400 kills since November? Because we had their names and we knew who they were. Exactly. So the monitoring is there. The notion that you're saying or you're talking about is the no, the classical notion of agitation propaganda. Yeah. Is that in place? Yes, that's been in place for a long time. That's why Khamenei really is concerned that at this point, that agitation propaganda has already shifted away from the students into his IRG, into a general salam who saw the crash and the killing of these innocent people. And there was an entire new element that no one would have predicted, but are using anyway, where the students are saying, you know what, we're tired of having a second class cleric who's an idiot and really doesn't know how to run anything and is corrupt. Let us bring in another leader. Will the leaders all be pure, white and uh, innocent? No. Because usually when we we displace one leader, we brought in another problem of course. on top of that. But is there a concerted effort? I would say yes. Is there a name? Is there Are there candidates? Does it matter? It, it, it matters to the extent that I don't know about it and you don't know about it. In other words, I'm not interested, quite frankly, in knowing whom they have in mind, nor do I want to know. They're in the world of intelligence. More often than not, I do not want to know more information than I need to. Right. Well, the person the person will surface, of course. I, I'm just looking at the recent track record, and I look at Venezuela, where it's so pathetic that Guaido, is, is you know, his term is over, and he's doing his own... Sw- sw- a swearing-in ceremony to pretend that he's still in. I mean, it's pathetic. We have done such a piss-poor job there. How how can we not mess this one up then? It's, you know... Uh, I've never seen you flummox, Steve. What is this? This is new. It is not that I'm flummox. I'm, absol- I'm laughing in a way that I agree with you to a certain degree, and I'm laughing to the extent that you know, God took care of the incompetent and the alcoholics, one uh, person once said, uh, in America. And, you know, we're not always the most efficient, the most effective, but somehow we muddle to success. In World War II, we muddled through. In the uh, Soviet confrontation, we muddled through. Uh, we are not the Germany of efficiency nor are we the Japan of certain We just certain strap on more more steel to the vehicle. That that's the American way is we'll get you because look how big this fucker is. Well, that's that's it. I think you hit it on the head. You know, we may smoke pot, we may drink the alcohol, but one way or another we're going to get you. You know, one way or another we're coming after you and if you underestimate our capability shame on you. Right, but so efficiency but, is not our goal necessarily. But it requires a cohesion cohesion within the United States which although I think underneath on the street not removed from technology. I mean, it's much easier for so you know a, a, a pilot in Vietnam if you asked him, "Hey, would you please uh, burn this child right here, he'd say no. You remove him with technology, and he's like, okay, I'll drop the napalm. So obviously that's what we see on social networking. But maybe we need to, and I'm not advocating for this, but something needs to be done about our internal discord 
in particular, the the really the bought and paid for media seems like they're not doing their job properly if we want to have this cohesion that makes us that bunch of, you know, cigarette smoking, beer drinking uh, guys who can go and kick ass if we need to. Adam, in the in an in another world, in the world of the heuristic, what we call the most perfect world, I would agree with you. But having been in a couple of administration and seeing what the America, what America that I know works like, we have never been unified. Uh, Pearl Harbor attempted to unify and we went into Germany and we went into Japan and we did what we had to do. The fact of the matter is, I do not see this, the discordance, as a problem. As a matter of fact, I think it's quite healthy because what it brought out, when, when somebody, let me give you an example. I'm not talking about left or right or who's no, right. No, 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 no. Let's talk about the discordance and the cacophony that we hear, which is absolutely amazing. When I hear a Bernie Sanders, a Bernie Sanders, 78 or 79 years old with a heart condition, say that Trump, is a pathological liar. What happens? Guys like me say, oh, okay, Bernie. Well, you're the sanctimonious one. You're this little Jewish boy from Brooklyn who didn't serve us. You never really did anything on your own. Oh, by the way, Bernie, he's the pathological liar. How is it that you were lying about the fact that you were you know, a rich man, but it was due to books. No, Bernie, I sell more books than you do, and I do not make millions. Bernie, how is it that you lied about the fact that your wife took a private college, bankrupted it, and walked away with 300000 That's the beginning of the Bernie Sanders pathological liar. Mm -hmm. And how is it, Bernie Sanders, that you can say to Warren that you don't believe women should be running in 2020? So my point to you, my friend, is that type of discordance is very healthy for a guy like me because it brings out the underlying tensions that we have in this country. The counterpart to that would be in Iran in the streets, but they're all talking in the coffee shops and elsewhere. You do not have that kind of unified, what I call the unified discordance across the board in Russia. You want to talk about Vladimir Putin? You don't like the way he works? I can assure you within a couple of days, you will be in Lubyanka because I've been there. But the point of fact that we are discordant, that the newspapers have not been you know, the Mockingbird, remember the relationship that the CIA had. Oh, you mean the one that, that we you know, went through the church committee and it didn't end? It actually, they doubled down? Right, yes. Right. Oh, yeah. So let's explain to your audience that, you know, the, the leaders of the New York Times met with the head of the CIA. Uh, the, Mrs. Graham of the Washington Post met with the CIA. Uh, there wasn't anybody who hadn't met with the CIA. As you brilliantly said to me last time, every book publisher came out of the CIA. You no. want a book? We'll give you a book. Yeah. We'll that's publish a book. That's right. Now, you don't have to write it. We'll write it for you. No problem. We'll write it for it. I mean, we don't care. So in effect... There is this intelligence community hovering above the discordance, which I'm not going to say they're so brilliant and manipulating, but they allow it to occur because there has to be this kind of tension in a society like ours. We huh. were aggressive. We want to be, you know, we're not, we're short-term interested. We don't have patience for long-term uh, capabilities. Where our military-industrial complex 
is so powerful that people working in Massachusetts at Raytheon will go to New Hampshire so they don't have to pay the taxes that they got from the military industrial complex. And then they can join the Democratic Party to oppose the fact that they're in a military industrial complex. Welcome to the paradox of America. I love it. Yes. The, the, only, the only problem, I'm sorry to interrupt you, is yeah, no. the politicians are incentivized to keep that status quo of the military industrial complex unless the companies themselves make a lot of drastic shifts and moves because the payoffs will continue they have to continue that's how the system works but i don't i see right now i see this quagmire or it's like being in irons where the 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 industri- the military companies are they they're not shifting that quickly they like their because there's a lot of secondary sales around the world. I mean, this is a big business just to move over to you know to get rid of the traditional kinetic. I think is is a tough process. I I would agree with you, but it's happening much quicker than you think. Okay. For example, Boeing. You and I would have talked about Boeing having problems and going under, literally losing revenue. Forget the accidents that they had. That was part of the stimulus but boeing could not sell any airplanes so who comes in european you know from toulouse the truth of the matter is that the industrial the military industrial complex as we know in kinetics has shifted so drastically to kind of what you said your friends in silicon valley where did you get billions of dollars it went to microsoft it could have gone to amazon but the, the government said, OK, we're going to give you billions of dollars for you to get into the Internet business. So they, they okay. are they are the new military industrial complex. I would say that Bezos and half of your friends who smoke pot or don't smoke pot, including Zuckerberg, they're the more powerful ones. Raytheon is nothing compared to that. Right. Uh, most of these companies are nothing. I mean, you've got companies there, Orca, and you've got companies in northern in the Silicon Valley. They're hitting 100 million hacks a day. If we had that counterpart in kinetic energy, we'd be destroyed. So kinetic energy is really kind of the facade that's disappearing very quickly. And you're right. We're selling tanks to whoever wants tanks. And But for the most part, United Arab Emirates, the Saudi Arabians, they want to shift. The Israelis want to shift. They're tired. They don't want to fight Hezbollah. Hezbollah has been attacked by the students who feel that there was garbage in the streets, give me a break. I never (laughs) thought in a million years that Nazarali would be brought down by rioting over garbage in an effectual government. You're talking about the chief of a terrorist group being brought down by students in Lebanon? God bless them. I couldn't have predicted that. Our intelligence It's it's still going on, by the way. It's still burning in the streets. It hasn't stopped. And so who's taking down Hezbollah? The great students. The Sunnis, the Shiites, the Phalanges, the Christians. Okay, so so let's talk about the students for a moment. Um, So from the research I've done and from a couple people I've spoken to, a number, if not a majority of the students that were on the Ukrainian flight uh, going back to um, Canada um, were warned specifically not to leave the country. Apparently a lot of them were working uh at the nuclear facilities in iran now this i'm just telling you what i heard uh, i don't know that. I, I heard don't they were told not to leave they all left and that the uh and that 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 freaked out iran so much that 
they had to stop them because they didn't want them debriefed, etc. Plausible to you or not? You know, in the world you and I work in, everything's plausible and nothing is real. But from my perspective, if you look at the risk-reward ratio, if that were the case, it's a very bad scenario for everybody. In reality, the best case of a worse incident, it sounds ridiculous, the best case was the plane was hit accidentally. And I believe that because in a conflict time, the coordinates, and as you may or may not know, were not given to the uh, the airline. In other words, Ukraine, they're smart. And the people who own that airline were not the cleanest or the sweetest people. They were pretty rough and pretty tough. They were totally taken aback by what literally happened. And my suspicion is that in the midst of war or conflict, a lot of accidents happen. And I would sure. put them more to the sense of accidents. If they were, in fact, you know, let's say uh, students of the nuclear power, Canada would have had a little problem with them. In other words, that would be the Canadians would have a real problem. But Canada doesn't want an internal conflict. For whatever Trudeau does, most of their prime ministers are pretty effective at keeping things quiet. You've got the French part and the British. But as I understood, most of these students really were Iranian. But for the most part, they go into either fields of artificial intelligence or whatever, Mm -hmm. cyber command and nuclear. But also remember, nuclear is not a very effective power anymore. We we really don't need it. Uh, The strategic deterrence worked. For 30, 40 years, our B-52s don't really have to fly because, once again, Adam, your friends in the Silicon Valley, they just push a button. <laughs> I don't I, really have friends in Silicon Valley, just, well, just pointing you know, it out. I think you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The people you know and the people I know in Silicon Valley, they're the, real, they're the forefront of both peace and yeah. war. Yes. Why, why do you think uh, General Salam, I think, why do you think he admitted the mistake so quickly? And why, I mean, why did he admit it at all? And how does that work within the communication structure of Iran? I mean, that, in the fog of war, to, you know, not wait for a day or two, or, I mean, he came out pretty quickly, and, and that obviously would spark off um, anger. Well, it's a good point. I don't know General Salam, but I do know that there's a certain pride within the military, even in Iran. Although, remember, they are religious to the degree to which they are religious. That's their own dynamics. But they are religious. What they will not tolerate is the barbaric act of, of innocent people getting killed for no reason whatsoever. That doesn't work within Islam, doesn't work within Judaism or Christianity. From that perspective, he felt right away that this was shameful and that the lies that Ayatollah Khamenei had resorted to really undermined his sense of being a Muslim, a Shia. And I think that perhaps more than anything, we will look back in history and those 176 people were really the quiet warriors of this war. And that moment will have turned around a lot of the dynamics that we now see. And that's what I predict, that with because of that moment, the General Salams, the woman who proclaimed she's no longer going to be in Iran, she was a Taekwondo winner, and the students will change that administration within a few months, and you will see a new Iran. I could be wrong, but this is the beginning of new times for them. Who, um, who would be... 
um, President Trump's uh, partner in Iran to to open up negotiations. Is that the uh, and what position is that? Who it, it may be a new person, but who really would he need to be seen making deals with? If I were Iranian, I would make a point of two things. Number one, it would be a woman. And number two, it would be a woman who's sophisticated in national security, a professor from the University of Tehran. That would be the profile I would pick. Because the students of the University of Tehran are incredibly bright. And the students and the the fact that a woman comes to the forefront of Iran, that would be a a breaker of any. Oh, no, that would that would. Yeah, that would trip everybody out. And that would be my suggestions to the students, that they support a woman who comes to the forefront, who has worked with the students, has even worked within national security, and really can make the deal that's possible. Because Trump is a deal maker. Everything else is secondary. You know, I always have to look at one thing every time I hear Trump say what he has. I still remember 42nd Street, Woman Memorial, the, you know, Fifth Avenue and, and the casinos in New Jersey. And what you have to say, we Americans build the process of building is secondary to us. But we have finally a president who builds on top of that. There's all kinds of dynamics that have to do with envy. Pelosi has really gotten herself into such a centrifuge of self-destruction. I feel badly for her. I had respect for her 10, 12 years ago because I'd worked with some of her people to get certain policies through. But she's doing a swan song. The shifts, the politicians, they need to get their narcissism in front of everybody when, in fact, we're dealing with substance and we don't care about the narcissism. So what's happening with that kind of narcissism that's coming both from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, it's tuning all of us out. So guys, yes. like you and me, we talk to each other. I'm not right. going to talk to the media. I'm not going to talk to the New York Times. I'm not interested. I'm not even watching their news. Oh no, no. In 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 a few years, none of that none of that will be important anymore. Except right. the politicians who are still there. Certainly, I mean, you're uh, very young, a mind, spirit, and uh, understanding. <laughs> no, I'm trying to be kind, but uh, most politicians. They still think it works like, oh, you know, I do an interview with the New York Times, I'll talk to the Washington Post, and then CBS uh, will pick it up, and then uh, message uh, delivered. And that's just not the way it works anymore. It just doesn't work that way. The whole reason you're talking to me is proof. It just doesn't work that way anymore. Well, it's not only that. I talk to you because you have what I call myself a rock and roll spirit. If if you don't get it, if you don't have that spirit of the music and the vitality of not ideas. We're not intellectual. Everybody thinks because we talk, therefore we're in. No, we talk because we create a narrative and a storyline. But I like to think of it. Why do I go to Adam Curry? Because he was in the music business and I know he likes it. And he understands the fact that even though I was a concertant, I'm really a rock and roll kid. You know? <laughs> I don't care how old I am. Yeah. And in a way, Trump is that rock and roll kid, too. You know, he hasn't gotten over that. Is it immature? I don't know. I don't particularly care. No, but, that, but that's that, very American. That is that's, that's very American. Correct. Yeah. That now you hit it on the head. Mm-hmm. When I sit down and I'm writing, I used to say to my kids, tell everybody it was classical music. Of course, what it was was Ram Jam and it was Little Richard and Antoine. And I still do it. 
to this day, I still do it. And you know that Tommy yeah. Shane, Tommy James. And, 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 you know, I was, I, I started to get really um, disappointed and sad when I saw uh, Russia, you know, putting up signs at their airport, you know, the, the signs, the, the digital signs there saying, hey, we don't have Hillary's emails. I mean, they're becoming the guys that we we're supposed to be the jokers. They can, they're taking our gig. That's our our business is to make light of it and make a big, funny joke. I'm a little worried. We got it. And that's why I think Trump brought that back into a degree. Um, I think so. And, but, and I think you with your podcast, I, I really mean it with your podcast that carries it on. Alex carries it on. There's a whole group of us that they call alternative media. That's fine by me. Yeah. I don't care what you call me. As long as you begin to understand that the spirit of America is within us. We yes. want to make sure the republic is intact. I don't care if it's Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever you want. Right. You want marijuana, great, blah, blah, blah. However, do not destroy the republic. And that republic is not being destroyed. Ironically, in the most discordant times... We have an economy that's going out of control. It's really booming and grooming. And that's what America understands. I will say one thing, and and I know the Democrats will not like what I'm about to say, that if a Democrat gets elected as a day trader, I will say to the Democrats, you will see a, a economy and a Wall Street that will not accept a Democratic candidate. And that will go down very quickly. I don't want to say that ex cathedra, but I do say that as somebody who day trades and says every time we talk about a Democrat coming to power, the economy pulls back every yeah. time they're out of power. We are going up. And that's the reality of the of the of the of the Wall Street and the economy. We want people who want growth. We do not need palaver and we do not need socialism. That's not what we're about. You said something that I wrote down and I think maybe we just saw the the peak of that or the pinnacle and that's process government um I think that's really interesting uh, uh phrase because that of course it's bureaucracy begets process government but we just went through you know showboat trial after showboat trial in the house all with process people who you know and and I my whole family's filled with process people so I'm like oh my god uh do you think that Trump will be, I think he's already done some of it, but is it maybe this the point where we shift uh, from internally as well, not just what people perceive, from process government to goal-oriented? You know, it's like, okay, we got to get this done, we'll back some process into it, because it seems like, and that's what big government is, it's process, it's just, it's annoying process, nothing ever gets done, like big companies. Do you think we're going to shift, and will Trump be able oh, to pull shifting. that off? Well, no, no, we are shifting in a way because what you're seeing is that Trump has articulated, look, I'll give you every reason you want in the world for what I did it. You want to say I did say that or I didn't. He didn't care because right now what he's doing, he's playing with the process and he's showing the underlying of stupidity of what's going on. Meanwhile, what we're doing is that we're creating elements of movement, the space warfare, what you said, we're, we're creating cyber command, cyber control. At the same time, we're making overtures of peace around the world. The Chinese want to come in with us. He did a brilliant job, and, and I had mentioned it, but nobody realized. He sent in Japanese warships and oil ships into Straits of Hormuz. Who would have thought that Japan would be our surrogate in the Middle East? That was a brilliant movement. So... Those type of movements 
belong to you and me, the rock and roll theories, the, the people who say, no, we're not interested in process. We're interested in end point results. And that's what he's moved around. In turn, Israel doesn't have to carry the burden as long as the Japanese ships are out there. They know very well the Japanese and the Iranians get along very well. Oh, by the way, his good friend Putin, who our people concern, oh, <laughs> destroyed our election. No, he didn't destroy our elections. He in turn went into Iran and told everybody to cool it on behalf of Trump. Right. So that personal relationship becomes important because, believe it or not, Trump, like you and me, he wants to have hotels in Tehran. Of course, and, and in North Korea. And in North Korea. And I can tell you, it's very expensive to live in Tehran. <laughs> yes. And his hotels will do very well. So from that point of view, we've summarized Pretty much what he's interested in. He'll come back and he's going to get reelected. The question is, who did he come back with as a vice president? I think Mr. Pence, you think Pence, Pence is out. You think he's out? Yeah, I think mm. it's time for him. And, and McConnell has correctly said, look, you want to be a senator, go back to Kansas. And I think it's time for you to go back to Kansas. Mm. Nikki Haley would be a good choice because we need a woman there. She has been effective as a governor and, and various other elements. But, you know, I'm not going to play my cards on anybody. It's up to Trump what he feels comfortable with. And, of course, Jared Kushner and Ivanka. That's their prerogative yeah. because people forget Bush had his son. It wasn't the brightest. Like one, the whole Jeb. damn family. Come on. The whole family. Everyone's in on it. Yeah. But unfortunately, Jeb was smarter than Bush Jr. Yeah. Who got in. So, mm -hmm. you know, you know what it, it, it um, to me, you know, it's, I like I like what we're talking about here about us. Be, America is rock and roll and we get we get to invent a few things, you know, from jazz that that beget. But really, rock and roll is the modern the modern American form. We are cowboys. And yeah. and I'll take from uh, my entertainment experience. And this would be a message to all politicians. Never underestimate the American audience. They know very well what they want and what they like and nothing can sway them. And no. I think that, that works for politics as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. But think of the following. And when I, th I see you and I see myself, how many different jobs did you and I have? Oh, I started as a doctor. A lot. Then I, I mean, that's the point. You and I can get along. We don't have generational differences because no. we have been in the same business of being hustlers, entrepreneurs, creating a product. Maybe it's successful. Maybe it's not. We didn't go out and tout what we've, you know, our successes. But at the same time, when people say, well, you know, you did this. And then I said, yeah, but I failed. I was bankrupt three different times. Mm. And when do you come back from bankruptcy? Only in America can you come back from bankruptcy. Only in America does it give you a chance, not just once like Trump or like me, twice or three times, because this is a vital government. This is a vital country. And it loves business and it loves to be kind to others. We are blessed in a way that the Chinese often said to me when I was in China 10 years ago, they said, you know, when you people in America have a problem, you only have 365 million people. Yeah. When we have a problem, it's 1.4 billion. And I kind of sat there and nodded <laughs> my head kind of saying, you know what? That's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I forgot the numbers. And at the same time, they say, look, you've got the Missouri, you've got the Ohio, you got all these rivers. We've got the Yangtze and the Yalu. Where does our water come from? I said, it comes from the, uh, the Himalayas. They yeah. said, right. And so 500 million of the Chinese don't have water. 
Right. Right. So we are so fortunate geographically, politically, economically. I want this discord. It's part of our rock and roll heritage. If we didn't have it, we would have a very dull existence and we wouldn't have the energy. <laughs> We'd be up. Europe, Steve. We'd be exactly. the EU. <laughs> so, so and that's where we left. That's so, exactly So right. tomorrow, um, you already uh, prefaced it, um, the president will be announcing his phase one deal with China. Thoughts on that? I think that's very important because finally, those of us on the trading floor have said, you know, it's come to fruition. We accounted for it in the markets, but we're beginning to see as citizens that whatever Trump does, he literally will fulfill it. And as as crazy as he sounds at times, which he's not, it just is bombastic rhetoric that covers up the reality of a Mnuchin, of the guys who really did the work. And I give credit to all those guys who really worked out there and worked with the Chinese. And I give credit to the it's Chinese. So, it's so interesting to look at it from that perspective because um, just like rock and roll, you know, you can dance to us, you can sing along with us, but there's always a mess. There's usually a message underneath, which is very simple and very sincere and very deep. And that's all the uh, Vietnam uh, protest songs. But going back to the, to rock and roll, I mean, th- these are real protest songs that were catchy, catchy tunes. I mean, CCR, John Fogarty hit it. But yeah, let the me, fortunate son. Let me, yeah, I'm not, right. But let, let me go even further. I mentioned the man Mnuchin, Goldman Sachs. But what did he really do? He was an executive producer of movies. Yeah. Does anybody know that? Yeah, I do, but yeah, no one knows. Goldman Sachs go to executive producer of 20 of the top films. You know, that's rock and roll stuff. And then comes back to be a demure secretary of treasury <laughs> who has to deal with Chinese uh, uh, bureaucrats. I don't send treasures in G. Wasn't the head of any musical. He didn't fit into <laughs> any shows that I know about. Phantom <laughs> of the Opera, maybe. Well, <laughs> it's a good point. But you see, those are our people. Wilbur Ross, what is his job? Oh, he turns around bankrupt companies. What do you mean? Bankrupt companies. That's an American guy. Yeah. He goes in there, goes in and evaluates. Well, it's not only the cash flow, it's the people. I want to make sure there's jobs to the people. We turn it around. That's what we do. And so in our own envoys, you're seeing the multiplicity of their own dynamics and their own characters. When you see a Mnuchin, when you see a Wilbur Ross, I mean, they were picked. Not on the basis of their academic credentials, whether they went to Harvard or Yale, that didn't matter. They were picked on the basis, oh, number one, they know finances. They've been in Goldman Sachs, pretty good. Maybe you like him, maybe you don't. But, whoa, he, he made a lot of movies. Wilbur Ross turned around a lot of companies. That means, you know what? I think these guys can handle a bankrupt company like China, which is bankrupt right now. Mm-hmm. And so, China needs us more than it needs anybody else. And we will work with China. At the same time, what Trump showed to Xi when he took out Soleimani is, please be careful. Yeah. You know, don't do anything stupid because I can turn it the other way. And also to Kim Jong-un, who he says repeatedly, look, I like you. I want those hotels in North Korea. But I know you're concerned to give up those weapons. I promise you we will not take you away. Well, that 
The reason for that is very simple. Kim Jong-un doesn't want to create nuclear weapons. He just wants to make sure he has a pension and he has a job because he saw what we did to Saddam Hussein. He saw what we did to Gaddafi when we promised. And that was due to the liberal, due to uh, Hillary Clinton and others who didn't know what they were doing. At the same time, Trump is saying, you know what, Kim? You and I are personal friends. Let me figure out what's going to make you feel comfortable. I know you're not going to shoot any nuclear weapons. I know they're not even relevant. But by the way, we're going to find out what's going to make you comfortable. Oh, by the way, I happen to also know that you own a huge estate in Geneva. But let's not talk about it. <laughs> so what do you think, um, Steve, is is the next arena? So you know, China is being worked on. Iran is being worked on. Um, what's next? I think what you hit on before, and, and I haven't given a lot of thought, but I'm kind of surprised that we allowed Latin America to go down as quickly as uh, Venezuela, etc. Venezuela, yeah. Brazil, you know, a whole bunch of these countries are in trouble. And, you know, a lot of it started with the neocons, but you can't blame them completely because, you know, Maduro's in there. You've got Cuba, you've got Russia, you've got China. So we need to get some people down there who understand the culture, who understand the differences between the countries. And it's our southern flank. And we have to make sure that we can control that southern flank. I'm not worried about Canada. I'm not worried about China. I'm not even worried about Europe. But you're having brought up that Venezuela issue, plus the fact Brazil is in trouble, plus the fact other countries in Latin America are in trouble because they don't have capabilities for any kind of economic resource. Venezuela doesn't can't pump the oil anymore. Right. City Group is gone, and we don't need their refineries. It, it's, so. it's no longer that needed. That's that's the big the geopolitical change is we don't need it anymore. That that's exactly yeah. what happened with the white revolution in Iran. We didn't need the farmers in Iran in the fields. I didn't need the students who came out of Tehran University. So what do we do? That creates dissension. So we have to become much more creative for Latin America. And that's where we need strategy and tactics. If there is to be a State Department and an intelligence community and all of that and an economic one, then get together and develop the strategy. But more importantly, tell me the steps that were required within short time, not long time, to get this change. And that's where we have a problem. We've covered a lot of ground here, Steve, and um, and I, I I don't want to keep you too long, but I do have one more uh, question. Uh, since I looked at it so deeply, I'd like you to shed some light on your opinion of it. Ukraine specifically, we don't have to talk about uh, servers and all that, but just Ukraine as a hub for corruption, payoffs, and arms trade. I don't think people realize how key Ukraine has been for for maybe a better part of 20, 30 years. Ukraine has always been the stepchild of the Soviet Union. When we took apart the Soviet Union, Ukraine went on its own. Uh, was it capable of handling its own dynamics? In retrospect, no. But in retrospect, you can't tell me that Putin invaded Crimea. That just that wasn't the agreement we made when we took down the Soviet Union. Crimea had to be part 
of this of Russia in the same way that we have outlets in the south of, you know, in Florida and Houston. Well, we right, need but, but that was I mean, that was propagandized in America as some horrible Putin move, a because Russia. Right, the neocons came in and, and that's what started all of this problem. But but, but wasn't, wasn't there already money flowing through arms deals, et cetera, through Ukraine back to politicians in the U.S.? Because that, that's really what I'm what I'm. Okay, what I'm, what I'm poking then, towards. I, I know what you're getting at, Adam. When there is a concept where I talk about national character, it's not a stereotype, but it is dynamics that we know of certain countries. The Slavic countries, particularly Russia, Ukraine, and the Eastern European countries, they have a word in Russian which we call Nalieva, means to the left. Even under the Soviet Union, everything that could be done could be done under the table, Nalieva. That's an inherent culture, the Ukraine to Russia. So under the Soviet Union, I would meet people who had two jobs and two, you know, means of cash flows. Mm -hmm. And then there was a third one that was off the record. So it's always been an inherent part of Eastern Europe, of Russia, the Ukraine. Corruption is by its own definition, the means by which you can make systems move. Mm -hmm. It's necessary. Ironically, I'm one of the few who says it's required in a system. How much corruption is the key element? And right. that's where it gets into trouble. And there we had Americans, primarily American Jews, who had no idea the Ukraine did not speak the language, had not been involved in taking down the Soviet Union. The neocons and all the Kagans and his wife who went in there and made a mess of that and increased the problems of corruption. Normally, we can tolerate corruption, even in the United States. When you give a tip to somebody in cash, ironically, that's a corruption. But the reality is we tolerate only so much and then we will come down on somebody. Where the United States gets hurt is when we see too much corruption of our political and our leaders and they've never been accountable. Right. The Epstein story. How come nobody got arrested? Where, where, where was justice, Mr. Barr? I don't see anybody arrested for pedophilia. Uh, another story, it doesn't matter where, but it is the amount of corruption that's tolerated. Russia is the dominant power in Eastern Europe. Ukraine is not a power in of itself. It will never be, and it can't be. Under World War II, it allied with the Germans and was split by the Russians. It has a very, uh, very varied history, which is continuously uh, underwritten by corruption, different alliances, switching alliances. It will always be a province of the Russian dominance. It, that's just the way it is. It will always have elements of corruption within it. In the same way, if you work in France and you want somebody to do anything, I mean, besides their pension and their early retirement, you got to give them cash. Or in England, you know, that's what works. That's an interesting point. And I think that America has traditionally always had a 15% corruption. I think, you know, if you really if you really want some extra good service, you corrupt for 20%. We're great tippers. And, there, that, and, and, it's, and it's very interesting because, you know, Europe is not customary. Japan, it's an insult. Um, that tipping, that's, that is, uh, that's interesting that tipping is corruption and we... We tolerate about 20% corruption, I guess, as Americans. That's kind of yeah, along with tipping. That's exactly it. I mean, it says tipping is to ensure promptness, tip. Right. But it really is 
I really like you and I like what you did. And and then we have an artificial construct that says, oh, we tip 14 percent of the bill. What? If I ate one dollar egg, you get 14 cents. No, I usually tip because I'm I'm grateful for the service. If I go to the gas station, the guy does a nice job. I give him another 20 or 30. That's the way the system moves. But it's also for the next time. Exactly. That's what it's for. And that's what we have. We understand that within our rock and roll economy. Yeah. We understand that within our own, you know, cowboy world. You know, we give cash. We're not holier than now. That's why we have all these different religious groups to make sure we have the patina of self-righteousness. Thank God for the Baptists. Yeah. They can offer a patina of righteousness. Thank God for Christianity. They can offer a patina. Whereas the Jews get the classical stereotype, we like money. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. But the point <laughs> is we have enough different – we have different religious groups and concepts to cover over that patina of corruption. And that's fine with me. Yeah. Steve, the ones we hate are the self-righteous ones. We can't take that. Steve, I, I, I love how you always unfold the world for me. <laughs> and and I, oh, I learned a lot today. I learned a lot of cool things. And I, I like a lot of these concepts. Oh, I, I, one just last thing on my, on my note, just historically. Why, for, for a civilization and a region that has so, uh, been around for so many thousands of years, why is the population of Iran so young? Where, what happens to the old people there? It's a, that's an excellent question. A lot of them left, and remember, a lot of them were killed. There was a war. That war between Iran and Iraq took over a million on each side. Right. So you don't have a lot of the old people. And also, they die. They, they don't have jobs, and the young people come up. Mm-hmm. And it's a young country in a way. Ironically, historically, it's five to 7,000 years old as Persia. Yeah. But from a developmental point of view, it's very young and very aggressive and exceedingly smart. If I had the chance to run our, uh, you know, basically ICE, I would accept all of these Iranian students. I I was going to say that my experience with Persians, they're just like us. There's so many similarities. Exactly. And, and, you know, it, you know, this is a country where Irish immigrants came, Jewish immigrants came, the Russians came, the Chinese came. Now we have, uh, you know, people from Pakistan and India running our high tech companies. Soon we'll have Iranians. And God bless it. This is what this country is about. Rock and roll, my friend. <laughs> and with that, I want to thank you, Steve, for another, oh my gosh, um, oh, an hour and 20 minutes. It's such a pleasure chatting with you, Steve. It really Adam, is. always a pleasure with you. I mean, it really is. I've enjoyed it. And make, yep. sure, make sure you go to uh, stevepachanik.com and uh, pick up a copy of his book, because that is something we didn't touch on today, but it's something that must okay. be read. Fantastic. Steve, we'll talk in about a month or so. Absolutely, Adam.
living in a land where sex and horror 